are dismissed to your classes. And we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. 1 Peter 4, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6. First Peter 4, uh, verses 3 through 6. Let's ask God's uh, blessing upon our time. Dear Holy Father, as we just sang, that these ancient words that are forever true, and how they change us, they change us deeply. And they've been passed down to us faithfully. Dear Holy Father, we just stand in awe that what Peter is writing about in this passage to a group of people that we're already seeing persecution and more to come. That within about a couple of years, Peter and Paul will both be dead and Nero will be destroying the church. The same things that he is writing about at this moment speak through the years to us. Because you are the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And may we take courage in that that your word, because it is the truth, never goes out of style. In your son's name we pray, amen. I'm going to give you an illustration that has really nothing to do with the sermon, but I was thinking about it. Um, as we were sitting there singing that Almost Home song, um, the reason we're singing that, first of all, is next week, literally in verse 7, it says, the end of things are at hand, and so forth, and talking about the journey almost done. When I first heard that song, it reminded me, um, in the Yorgi family, ever since our kids were little and ever since I can remember, uh, my grandfather has a, has a shore house out in Avalon, that, and we, we drive there, so we were two hours away when I was in Pennsylvania, and we would drive down, and you get off this, this road called Route 9, and you're driving out the causeway from the mainland to the shore. And the breeze coming by, the smell of the ocean, the seagulls and everything, and the excitement builds that you're almost to the shore. We start with our kids, now in Wisconsin, for most of their lives, and a 15-hour drive out, you're looking forward to taking that left on the Route 9 and hearing the seagulls, seeing the bay and the water and smelling the ocean air, and you can go, we are almost there. And I pray that we as a church take those breaths of heavenly air and go like, we're almost there. This is but for a vapor. This is but for a moment. We're on that causeway of life between the almost and the, the yet to come. And we're almost home. So continue on being faithful. Because even in my mind, I'm like, even if the car breaks down, I mean, like we could walk the rest of the way there. You know, and, and that's my prayer, that we start living in that mindset, that even though there's a lot of struggle in this world, by God's grace, we're almost home. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it was just, we don't, I try not to do random things here, I try to help you think through the way that God has worked my brain, and so next week we'll be talking about that, how do we live with the end time at hand, at hand, so that being said, now actually the real illustration to get things started. There have been times in my life where people have said things like this, hey Tim, a group of us are going to go to, and you fill in the blank, 
Are you going? I've got to make a decision. Am I going to go with where they're going or not? And if I say no to whatever that is, they say things like this. Why are you not going? Do you think you're better than us? You used to be fun, but now you're not. Or what's going on? I mean, you used to be one of us, but... And they can fill in the blank that happens after that. 1 Peter 4, 3-6 reminds us of what do we do in situations like that. So I'm going to give us a little running start. We're going to start in verse 1 and get through 6. 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of, the, of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time is past sufficing for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel has been preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The title of the uh, sermon today is a Christian Living. This is part two, but I'm calling it The Change. Because Paul, uh, Peter here is reminding us that there's a way of thinking that arms us to live a life that is not for human passions, but for the way with the will of God. And now he's going to go into, in, in verse 3 and so forth, to talk about that one time you did this, now you do this. And in a way, he's describing, and it put our brains around it, for those of you in this room that are saved, you live a two-volume life. You have volume one that was the unsaved life, and then you have volume two that is the saved life. So some of our volumes may be longer in the unsaved world and shorter in the volume two part, but it doesn't matter no matter who you are. If you're a believer in Christ, no matter how short volume one is, you have volume one and you have volume two. And the, the question is, is when we go from volume one to volume two, there's going to be a change between these two volumes. And so as we think through this, Peter is expressing this concept to them. So we're going to see the first point here in point three, and I've labeled it enough already. Because here's what he says, the time is past sufficing for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do. He's basically answering the question that's in front of them, how long do we need to live in sin? How long do we need to keep doing what the Gentiles do? And Peter says, any time is too long. All right, this is past time. Peter is talking to a group of changed believers, and so what he is saying here is it is time, and it is past time, to stop sinning. He's answering the question, as some people like to say, well, listen, now that I'm saved, there's still a couple of wild oats I still want to sow, and so I'll do that, and then, then I'll, you know, at the end of my life, I'll get it together. Peter is saying, no, that's not even a possibility. If you're wondering, is the time come for us to stop hanging out and doing what the Gentiles do? Peter says, yes, it's now, and it should have been yesterday. All right, someone would say, when should I stop sinning? The answer is yesterday. All right, this is what Peter is confronting them with. Because here's what he's going to say. Here's what's at stake. And point number two here, he's going to talk about this change. But before we get to this change, we have to break down... Because remember, Peter's writing to people that are living in a very strong Roman world and a Roman way of thinking. And so we have to first ask ourselves, what is at stake here? What is going on 
And I want to turn back here to 1 Peter 2.11 just to get a little context to remind ourselves. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles. Now remember, he's telling them that you are a passerby in this world. You are a sojourner, you're an exile. This is not your home, even though it is your home at the moment. This is not your eternal home. And he says, as you are a sojourner and exile, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And notice what these passions do. They make war against your soul. They are waging war against your soul. We are at war for our minds and our thinking. The Gentiles want to do this. The Gentiles are living that way. Because notice back in the text, these are things that the Gentiles want to do. These are their desires. These are unsafe people. They desire to do these things. It doesn't take long for us living in this culture that we talk in such a way. You listen to how the unsaved world talks. They're looking forward to the weekend because on the weekend, they can get to do all the things that they couldn't do during the weekday. So all they do is live for the weekend and they become weekend warriors. And I would argue as Christians, we live for the weekend, but because we can't wait to gather together on Sunday to be with one another. But the world is always like, I just want to go from one party and excitement to the next. And notice that there's a pattern of thinking, and we've talked about this before. The pattern of thinking that we are to arm ourselves with, because look at, at verse 2 there. Remember he says, no longer, we're living no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And remember, as we had talked before, that what we believe impacts what we value. What we value impacts the way we think, and it is then seen in the actions. And so what Peter is going to start to do here is show us the actions that come about because this is what the Gentiles want to do. This is what they believe is going to bring about pleasure and joy. And so it's then played out in what they do. And so he's saying the believer is to have nothing to do with this. This is what the Gentiles want to do, but you are called to a different life. So I want to take time here and work down through each one of these words to give us an understanding. Now remember, this is Rome in about 60 between 60 to 65 A.D. I'm not talking about 2022 America, all right? But you would think that I am as you listen to these words here. Again, which God's reminds us there's nothing new under the sun. So when you see this word sensuality, this word sensuality carries with it living a life without restraint. So in your notes there, I want you to write down no restraints. A living a life, there's no restraint at all. So there is no boundary. There is no rule that's guiding us. We're just going to live with no restraints. So this is where you would literally see in our culture, you just put a plus by something. Because what does the plus mean? No restraint, right? It just keeps going on. Then we get to this idea of passions. Passion means giving in to desire. So when you're living, when, what we have here is a no restraint living, that there's nothing that we're going to say no to, and then whatever desire comes along, what do we do? We say yes to it. All right, again, you would say, am I just pulling this out of the newspaper for today? Because what are we all struggling with in America right now? Is what are the boundaries? And then what can you say no to? And they're saying that the time has come. This is how the Gentiles live. There's no restraints, and they're giving in to every desire. Now next, it's very interesting that in order enlisting these, Peter puts next drunkenness. Because what is drunkenness? Drunkenness is when there's no restraints in what you're drinking. You're just doing what? Continually drinking. There is no boundaries. There's nothing there that causes a person to become drunk. There is no self-control. There's nothing that's going on. You literally are living, as you would call it, a sensual life because there is no restraint. And you say to yourself, notice how Peter is dealing with this because drink 
takes over the mind and gives us thoughts that we would never have thought, gives us ideas we would never have thought in our sober mind. In 1 Peter 1.13, listen to what he says, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded. He's saying there's, when you prepare your mind for the war that you are in, for the war for these passions, you must have a mind that is under the restraint and the soberness of God and His Word. Next we see here, not only are we living sensual, no restraints, passions, giving in every desire. Now we have drunkenness, there's no control over what we're drinking. Then we get to this idea of orgies, which is a group party of sinful desires, whatever goes. So again, remember, no restraints, and now we're going into what? Every desire comes, we just take it. And not only are we doing this individually, but what is the Gentile group doing? We're getting together to do these things. And we see it then too, not even that, we see parties of drinking, group parties of no restraint. Again, this is giving in to every desire and lust without any boundary, without any law in place, and notice how it ends, and lawless idolatry. The worship of things other than God. It Notice, I love that word in front of it, lawless idolatry. No bounds on how much idolatry you can have. The heart of idolatry is removing God from His rightful place and placing anything there. What America has done, what Rome had done here, was take their own desires and their own passions and said, we will worship these. We will bow down at the altar of our own desires and our own passions and we will worship them. Don't give me any restraints. Don't give me anything else. And so we reject and we remove all of our restraints. And then what we wonder, what we find is what? Lawlessness. Because the law confronts. The law brings about a standard. And when you look at a society that wants to remove all those things because we have desires that are coming, what we are living in a day and age where we're going, we don't want law, we don't want order, because law and order tell us no, and what we want is just whatever can go. It's interesting here that there's a struggle that goes on. The struggle is that we are called to live differently. Because look, look at what verse 4 tells us. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. So, we are to live in such a way that people are attracted to the things of God in such a way that God is honored and pleased because what's going to happen is we are going to live in such a way that people are going to go, why are you not like us? They're going to start to look at you and say you're a different for sure because when we live in a day and age where man is the one who makes his own call, all of a sudden the Christian worldview comes in and realizes that we are governed by principles, principles that we can't change to fit the culture, that are what they are, and all of a sudden when they run into a principled person, they don't know what to do. And the only thing you can do is when you run into someone who is principled is you have to mock their principles. And you have to try to malign them, and then the question then rises up to the person who's standing on their principles, do you actually believe these or do you not? And if, if we're not careful, what we can do as a church, what these people can do as well, they do the whole, I wonder which way the wind is blowing, and depending on which way the wind is blowing, we're going to turn in order of that, instead of saying, no, we are principled. I'm still trying to get over this, that we literally, on this last Tuesday, we as a country 
by a vote determined if babies were going to die or not in certain states. It is mind-boggling to think that the American culture has ever gotten to that point, or any nation would ever get to the point by literally casting a vote that we would vote for or against death that is going to happen. We literally live in a society right now, we just need to wake up and say this is the way it is. That a huge chunk of our society said, yes, you can kill your kid. Because we don't want a law that tells us when we can and cannot kill our kid. We have to just understand that that's where we live. Now, you can mourn all you want of the loss of that. But I would argue us we need to arm ourselves with a way of thinking because the world around us is not thinking the way, by God's grace, we as Christians should be thinking. But if you're not careful, you're in the same soup as everybody else. And guess what can happen? You can be drawn away as well. And what Peter is saying, if you are a follower of God, there's a line in the sand that you cannot and must not cross. He's saying there is no, there is no should you or should you not do it. He starts off by going, enough already, you guys. But here's the struggle. Notice what happens in verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then they malign you. What we see here is this, you, these people that he's talking to, these exiles and sojourners, used to do things with others. They used to do all of these things. They used to hang out with them. These Gentiles would consider them to be their friends. You know, you do used to hang out and do all these things together. Now, all of a sudden, you don't do that anymore. And they kind of look at you like, what's up? But here's the part. If you're a follower of Christ, Christianity, by definition, separates a person from not just a way of thinking, but actions as well. You can't call yourself a Christian if there are not actions that back up the calling, your belief. Because remember, what you believe impacts what you value. What you value impacts what you think, and what you think is played out in actions. Again, that's, it's, it's very important because if you're a follower of God, your belief system is different than ends up differently in your actions. And this is the reason, if you're a follower of God, you will be maligned and you will be mocked. Because... Christianity truly at the end of the day also understands this, that God will judge and that we can rest in God's holy judgment. But we have to ask ourselves, how are we to live? And I want to take a moment here. We're going to go to three different passages in Peter here to, to give us an, an understanding of how we are to live. So let's go back to 1 Peter 2.15. 2 Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter is reminding these sojourners that there is a way of living, that when you live according to what God has called us to do, you will literally silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, foolish people will still be ignorant, but your way of living will cause them to have nothing to say, even though they may try to say something in a way you're going to say the accusation won't ultimately finally stick. Even though it may stick in this world because we are in a corrupt world, ultimately at the end it will not. Going over to 3.16. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, notice it says when you are, not if you get when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Saying that you are going to live in a way known as 
the way you live with gentleness and respect, in a way that has a good conscience with others, not manipulating circumstances so you look okay. You are doing this before God, being principled in what He had called you to do. You will get slandered. But then when they do revile you, they will see your behavior in Christ and they will be put to shame. Then back to uh, 2.12. I think this is kind of a point that Peter's talking about quite a bit. In 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, again, notice they will speak against you as evildoers. They may see their good, your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. If you want to put it this way, the conclusion of the matter is this, that an exiled believer living will live in such a way that the world will see. And when you start to live as an exiled believer, fully trusting in God, the world will start to see what a life worth living is really all about. And the problem with that is, because of their sinful heart, they will mock it and try to ridicule it because they understand if I were to do that, what's at stake? Repentance, confession of sins, and all the other things that it is much easier to do what? Ignore it and mock it because that is a life we don't know what to do with. It's actions we don't know what to do with. And this is what we have been called to be as followers of God. Because our life, a believer's life, is a life that is filled with hope, love, peace, and joy that does not come from human passions. Ours is a life that is filled with love, joy, peace, and hope that does not come from human passions, We're not, which are fickle. You talk to people about these things. I mean, there were literally people that their whole lives were ruined this week or that week because of the stock market going one way or the other, and all of a sudden, all their hope is in that. Remember last week when we read that little poem that uh, Paul Harvey put together back in 65, and he was saying about how if, if Satan could come in and try to destroy a country, he would say, and he would cause all of us to pray, our Father, with art, which art in Washington, right? And all the people that put all of their hope in these things, all of the earthly hope where Christ is saying and Peter is saying, your hope is not in this world. Because if your hope was in this world, you would be well, first of all, you'd be incredibly depressed, but you would be hopeless because there is nothing lasting in this world. Peter here is reminding us and reminding the believers that he's writing to and through the gospel here, reminding us even now that, that life, a Christian life, will bring with it slander and mocking because this life is an otherly worldly life. When you are a follower of Christ, you have a foreign way of thinking. This foreign way of thinking gives you different goals and gives you different passions than the world. And it will, by nature, cause you to stick out. As we talked about two or three weeks ago, remember we talked about living to the glory and honor of God. When we truly understand, this is what happened in Switzerland during this time, when the Reformers came into Switzerland and they revolutionized the whole culture there because you all of a sudden had a group of people because in Switzerland at the time, if the boss was there, everybody worked really hard. The moment the boss leaves, everybody slacked off. And then the boss would come back and everybody worked hard. But when the believers there understood they're working to the glory and honor of God, they worked hard all the time. Why? Not because the boss was there, but because they wanted God to be glorified in what they do. And it doesn't matter who's watching because we know that we're working to the glory and honor of God above all. And when we look at these things... When we think through it that way, the slander, the mocking, the maligning compares nothing to the breathing, the breath of heavenly air following God.
because Peter is going to remind them. Peter's reminding them again as he writes this. And you can see as we went through verse chapters 2 and 3 and 4, and he's going to keep talking this on. You will get mocked. You will be made fun of. Almost in a way he's saying like, and I'll, I don't know if Peter would say it this way, but I feel as I've read it this way, like it's going to come, stop acting surprised. All right, A little bit like I always try to remind myself that I should not be surprised that sinners sin. You know, like what do you expect a sinner to do? You know, and it's one of those things where you sit there, and even as parents, we like to go, we should not be surprised when our kids disobey. Because literally, the Bible tells us that folly is in the heart of a child, all right? And that when we think through of the Gentiles, this is their way of living, because these are their passions. This is what, what drives them. But we, those of us who have been redeemed, have been redeemed to new passions. And then he gives the reason for it. Verse 5. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This, notice here the argument. They're going to malign you. And then he goes on to say, but they, the they is the people that are maligning you. They will give account to him, and the him there is Christ, who is ready. And the idea is he's standing there on the judgment seat, ready to judge at the judgment day, ready to judge the living and the dead. What we see here in point number four is the final judgment. Christ will judge everyone. So remember, when you're getting called names, when you're mocked, when you're isolated, when you feel like you're standing alone, you feel like you're the minority, and the world has moved on, and not only are you the minority, you've been told that you are the problem of all things. It's you are the problem, not sin, and when you try to do right, it is called wrong, and when you, the wrong is called right, when you're standing there, and the world seems to have the upper hand, and it seems as if no matter what is going on in this world, Evil seems to prosper everywhere we look. Verse 5 reminds us that God will judge. Now, these words are words of encouragement, but it can kind of sound vindictive a little bit if you, if you think about it for a second. All right, hey, you're going to get mocked, made fun of, but don't, hey, listen, God's going to judge them. I mean, like, hey, and we just sit there and go, hey, I'm going to get out of the way. I'll let the lightning bolt strike you. All right, is, is that what, are these the words of encouragement that Peter is giving? Is he like, hey, listen up, they're going to get what's coming to them. Is this how Christians are supposed to live? Because one of the arguments that get leveled against Christians is you go, hey, in your belief system is, hey, God's going to judge them, so you just get out of the way, all right? And we almost sit there like Jonah going, all right, God, any time now you want to destroy these people, all right? Is that how Christianity is supposed, are we supposed to live that way? Well, let's look at 1 Peter 2, 22, where Peter already answers the question. In 1 Peter 2, 22, speaking of the example of Christ, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Verse 23, speaking of Christ, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, he did not threaten. All right, so what was Christ's attitude during this time? When he got mocked, what did he do? He did not mock. All right, the, what, those are the questions you have to say, well, what did he do? We can look at the example. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He responded in love in this situation. Why did he respond in love? What can we learn from that? It was not just a blind love. 
meaning like, I'm just going to love you all, whatever, all right? It was a love that was based on something. Let's continue on. But continued to entrust himself. In a way, this word carries with it, he handed it over to him who judges justly. Meaning it is not the believer's job to sit there and just can't wait. I can't wait until these people go. It is our job to do what? When mocked, to love. When ridiculed, to not ridicule. And share the only thing that will bring an end to the mockery. mockery. The only thing that will bring an end to the lining is the gospel. What do these people need? Our heart should break that they're mocking the truth. And we should respond in love. Also look at 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Again, so we're not doing what the Gentiles do, right? So when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God. They won't see you just standing back and going, let God have them. What are you supposed to do? Still continue to do what is good, what is right, and what is pure, even if you are mocked, even if you are maligned. This is what you do. This is how you respond. When they mock, when they malign, when they do all these things, you respond by giving them grace, which by definition is what? Unmerited favor. That is the job of the believer. And why are you doing it? Because you entrust God with your life. Because one day he will judge justly. Because I would also argue, do you really think you're the right person? I mean, look at yourself. Only by the grace of God go you, right? You would be joining in there as well. I mean, one of my favorite lines, um, I forget what song it is, when, when the authors are talking, I can hear my mocking voice crying out among the scoffers. Like, you would be there too, but the grace of God. And so instead of looking down at proverbial Christian noses at everyone, what are we called to do? I would argue, weep with the foolishness that we see. Weep with the ignorance that we see. That will cause our hearts and minds to say, Lord, open their eyes to see. Because such would be I if you had not opened my eyes. All right, now we're going to get to verse 6. One of the joys of preaching verse by verse, you can't skip over this. So I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I've held three different views since Monday on this passage. Uh, and uh, even on the way in. So I, one of the joys of having... My, so my dad went, uh, was in seminary, and so there's multiple times I always call him, I give him homework assignments, where I went, all right, handle the verse 6 so we can talk about it, because I'm going to work through it, and let's have some fun kicking it around. And even this morning on the way in, one of the things I have the privilege of doing on the way on Sunday... I get a chance to pray with my dad about uh, the, the uh, sermon coming up. And we still had a debate <laughs> on what the dead meant. And I said, Dad, here's what I think it means. And he goes, well, it's you preaching and not me. And so I apologize. if I'll give you all of them. But there's four that I think are possible. One is just a joke. Um, first, number one, I mean, first, let's read it. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. All right. Possibility, this is not a disgruntled preacher that feels like he's been preaching to a group of people that never obey. All right, So this is not the preacher that's going, I feel like I'm preaching all the time. There's a bunch of dead people here, but I'm going to keep preaching anyway. That's not it. Number two, what it probably, there's, we're going to start looking at these. This is what I would argue it's not, but some have taken this. Um, the Mormons really get, get their kicks on this verse. Um, 
they would hold this that the dead get a second chance. And so you, somehow someone's preaching to the dead to give them another shot. I'm going to go, uh, no, no, that's not even close. Uh, the Bible talks about you just point unto man once to die and then the judgment. All right, so that's, I would say no. Uh, the third here is now I think we're getting a little bit closer. So let me read the context of it again. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So there's one train of thought that thinks that what we had is that these are actually truly dead people, right? This is not some fictitious something. That these are people that had, worldly speaking, were viewed as, because they were not living like the Gentiles, were viewed as wrong and condemned to die. And the world viewed them and say, you are completely evil, there's nothing right about you, even though that they were, they were a true follower of God. And what he's saying is that even though the world has said that these people are wrong, God, who's a final judge, will say that they are just and right. Right? That's one view. I would lean towards this last one here, that Peter is summarizing all of this, that we preach the gospel, because what you're, what's happening here is, remember, we weren't too far away from where the disciples were literally standing up, looking unto heaven, and going, when are you coming back? The early church wrestled with, because remember, Jesus goes up in the cloud and says, I'll be coming back shortly, right? And it's been a eternity speaking, it's short, but earthly speaking, it's been a long time. And so you had the early church really wrestling with what happens to all these people that died because we thought they were going to go, you know, like he was going to come back and get us. And so what's going on here? I would lean a little bit more on that argument that he's saying we preach the gospel. Listen, there's people that are dead that the gospel is still saving, and there's people that are alive that the gospel is saving, and God is going to come back and judge the living and the dead, and we are called to live in such a way that is honor and glorifying to God, because whether you are alive or you are dead, God is coming back, and we need to live in such a way with eternity in mind as we're moving forward, because, that's where I'm going to argue, verse 7, the end is at hand, and he tells us how to live. So saying all of those things, I want to encourage us with this. It doesn't take much anymore if you're someone who sees the world around them and just takes a look. There's a lot to be discouraged. I mean, I could sit here and tell you all the things to be discouraged about. Uh, but that's not the call for the believer. The call for the believer is to set our minds on the things of God. Because the things of this earth are passing, and God is working them all together for His glory. And my prayer is, is for you to go away encouraged to continually living faithful in what He has called you to do. It is hard when I see, as an exile walking through this journey, as the place that I call my temporary home, as I watch that temporary home fall apart, and the right being called wrong, and the wrong being called right, and I just shake my head and say, when, Lord, will you come and judge the living and the dead? I also have to remember, I'm calling for that same judgment on myself as well. And to pause and to say, but God, by the grace of God, so go I, and so I ask myself, in my sphere of influence, am I living a principled life to the glory and honor of God? 
Because as I told you before, that wrestle of mine as I, that, that was on that little picture frame in the hallway where I used to teach that your beliefs impact what you value, what you value impacts what you think about, and what you in, think about is seen in your actions. How am I doing with that? Are my actions really portraying and describing what I actually believe? Because I, the line at the end that just pounds into my brain, you always do what you believe. And that is a wrestle that I will be wrestling with until the Lord comes home. Because my wrestle is, am I actually living out what I say? Do I really believe that in Him is hope, in Him is love, in Him is joy and peace? Or am I too stuck with all of these worldly things that when all of a sudden someone maligns me or someone who says something about it, there I go. One of the most interesting things about being a pastor, and I've shared this with some of you, uh, I love going to uh, places where people don't know who I am, which is great, which I'm really not that great anyway of a person, so that's a lot of places where people don't know who I am. And they will start asking the normal thing that asks around, because remember, we live in a world where we're defined by our occupation, all right? Not by our, what we believe, but by your occupation, right? And you're, let's say I'm two hours into being at this gathering, and everybody's talking about what they do, and then they get to me. And you go, yeah, what do you do for a living, Tim? I'm a pastor. Boy, is that the killjoy of the time. Everybody starts going, oh boy, what did I say? What have I done? All right. You know, you're around people. I love the, whether you can tell that they're going, they, they were going to swear, but halfway through the swear word, they're changing it because, you know, there's a man of God right here. And you want to go like, I'm just Tim. All right. Like you, so you know what you're telling me, you know, that what you're doing is wrong, right? So, I mean, I, I would love to go, all right, let's just take a moment here. All of you that start backtracking, Why? You know, and it is, it is a comical thing, but notice how Peter is talking to a group of people. Notice how he says, you will be, right? Because being a Christian makes you different by definition. But it makes you different, and as we do this, what are we supposed to do? When people say, why are you not doing the stuff that we do? What you're doing is you're not sitting there with your, down your proverbial nose saying, because I think you're better than them. No, what you're saying is, because there is a joy, there is a hope, there is a peace that is greater that I want you to know as well. So look, do, be part of, follow, it's what we call. Because there is a greater joy, there is a, a joy that will last forever. Psalm 1611 reminds us that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And so when the world thinks their way to pleasure is no restraint and giving in to everything, we are able to boldly proclaim through the law of God and His saving work are pleasures that will never fade by Him. This is what He said to the woman at the well. Did He not say to her first? He didn't say, hey, fix up your morality. What did He say? I will give you water that you will never thirst again because what had she been doing thirsting for satisfaction in relationships and she had five guys and not even the one she was with thirsting for that relationship was even solving it. and it was just find another one and what did Jesus say I'm going to give you a desire change that will satisfy your soul what are the Gentiles doing satisfying their souls with things that will not satisfy it is if they take a cup of water and it just goes right through their body not even tasting the, the quenching their thirst and they just pick it up again and go 
But we, by God's grace, have the truth. We have been called to bear the truth. So this world will respond in mocking, but be of good courage. That although the wrong seems all so strong, God is the ruler yet. And we can rest in that. We can lay our heads, if you want to call it proverbially, on the pillow at night, knowing that God is on His throne. And that He will judge. And our job is to share the light of the truth with the lost and dying world. Because Peter is writing to a group of people that many of them, which is just mind-boggling, that will have read these words, obviously not in English, but will have read these words on their way to be killed in the Colosseum. I don't know what, how you're going to pass on into eternity. I don't know what we need to prepare this church for, but what I do know what will prepare this church is a group of people that are fully committed to the truth of the Word of God and that these words will carry us home. These truths will carry us home. So we look into this world and say, come what may, because God is on His throne and we trust and place our faith in Him because we're about ready to turn the corner of how to live with the end at hand. So let's pray. Dearly Father, Give us a boldness and a clarity. Give us an understanding of the truth of who you are. It is clear that we'll be mocked, we will be maligned, but it's by your strength and your strength alone that we stand. And we can take comfort in the fact that you will judge the living and the dead, and it is by your grace and grace alone that we stand. Not in a righteousness of our own, but in a complete alien righteousness, a righteousness that's been given by your Son's death on the cross. And so we stand boldly before the throne. And we claim the promises that you will be with us to the end of the world. And when this body is destroyed, may we, like Job, Remember this, that we know that our Redeemer lives and that one day we will stand before Him clothed in righteousness. So help us this week to have our eyes focused on the fact that we're almost home. And may that encouragement of almost being home cause us to continue to live a life fully dedicated to You and You alone. We ask these things in Your Son's name we pray. Amen.